So where we will be is Second Samuel. And so with that, let's consider right now in this teaching what the Lord is showing us. The title of this may have a little bit of change, but it definitely is to have a nuance regarding the theme of this. Getting ahead rather than bowing our head. Getting ahead rather than bowing our head. And in the study today, as we study the Old Testament, we do see pictures that have uh, definitely a point to make. And they have, uh, with that, at times just a very sobering and, and gruesome reality. What happens when sinful people transgress? What happens when people that seemingly are with good people forsake the laws of the Lord? And so we realize that that's a practical analogy for where we are today as a culture. We want to be both law-abiding, and yet we also want to be flowing in that wonderful provision of grace. And God can keep us there. Now with that, one of the things that we try to cite always is the central figure of our study, which is Jesus. And in this... I think even apropos to the title, he's the headmaster of the universe. Now that isn't a biblical phrase, but it does describe with regard to a good British term, an overseer, top tier overseer of everything. Everyone's accountable to a headmaster. And so when we looked at that before and continue to remind ourselves of God is sovereign, He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. He has absolute authority over everything. And yet we've also seen that he gives allowance in many things. It is not taking away from his ordinance of holiness and of righteousness. What it is showing is that the Lord allows in the agency of men to have a free choice. Whom will you serve today? What will you choose in the path that you are on? We desire that in all of these things that people will choose life. They will choose the Lord. They will choose to live in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we as believers know what that takes. It takes a surrender to the Lord in faith, with belief, according to what he says needs to be done confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. For with our hearts, we believe, and God reckons that to us as righteousness. And with the mouth, we confess, and he justifies us. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who do not call upon the name of the Lord in the manner that was just easily prescribed then they are outside of that provision because they've chosen not to follow. So we always want to be mindful that as we're not only being taught the word, but living out the word, that we need to be praying for those people who are ignorant of God, or as we'll see here, arrogant, prideful. Our opening Proverbs, which you can refer back to, very insightful for that. There are clearly things that God says that he hates. Pride is obviously one of them. 
feet that run towards evil and hands that commit bloodshed, hearts that are devising wicked themes. And so when we study the life of David, we are actually looking at what God has shown us to be a heart that does follow after him. But we also see in David's life a life that in certain events and choices that he makes renders a consequence. On the other hand, we see that, that David is one who, who very quickly demonstrates to us the need to repent. In other words, to apply the hyssop. Hyssop was the branch, the herb, that was used to apply the blood. And it speaks basically of turning from one's ways to God's ways. Hyssops was a means of, of demonstrating pictorially the requirement to confess with our mouth that we have sinned. And of course, when that transaction takes place, then we know that we have the obligation to believe that the blood that was shed for us has cleansed us. God forgives us. We move into that beautiful, restorative relationship or perhaps first-time experience of being made into a new creation. Not the old man, but new. And as a new person then, we end up being led in a new way. In that, God says, leave the former ways behind. That isn't what I want of you. It's not going to be fruitful to you. It will lead to consequence. So the blessings are from God to us. And he says, make a choice. Make a wise choice. Be one who is in this way, bowing the head, not trying to get ahead. The implications you'll see as we read our text. Headmaster of what? He's the headmaster of the universe. He's the headmaster in biblical progression of, of governance. He's the headmaster of marriage. He's the headmaster of the church. In all of these things, he oversees. And when we see things the way that God sees things and do things the way that God prescribes, we do far better in times which indeed can be bitter. Life has indeed been a blessing for God to give us, but under the weight of sin which still persuades us, we also not only scent the rose, but we feel the thorns. And the Lord allowed that to be an enablement in which for our sake there was a condemnation on earth. Why? It compels us to say there's got to be something different in my life. I see that difference in other people's lives and my life is tapped out. I'm tired. I've suffered needlessly because of heeding the ways of men being one of those that walked the way I wanted to walk, talked the way I wanted to talk, thought the way that I wanted to thought, think. <laughs> so let's get into chapter 4 right now. Second Samuel chapter 4, continue on where we left off. Lord, bless us as we look into this and as you look into us. Thank you for your word. 
which shall be read and exposited and devotionally applied. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Ishbosheth was the youngest son of Saul. He would have been after the death of his father and his two brothers, namely the eldest Jonathan, the heir apparent. David has nestled himself in Hebron, which was actually a city of refuge. Ishbosheth is in a city of refuge. These men both are governing over the people of Israel proper. In other words, there's a separated people group. David has the smaller group. Ishbosheth would have the larger group. But it's a divided kingdom right now. And God wants to bring these kingdoms together. He was doing that through Abner, who had repented. He did. And it's demonstrated in an action that he took. And that was basically to turn his back on Ishbosheth, to barter for terms of peace from David, which David gave to him. And they had a meeting. And in the meeting, the terms were satisfied. Abner's determination was to, with his authority, his influence, which he would have had greatly, been to have passed the baton on fully to David. David had been waiting at this point in time for seven and a half years, as well Ishbosheth. What we found out is that David's reign was increasing in strength. Ishbosheth's was diminishing in weakness. And therefore, what we presume is that was a sovereign act of God to change the course of events that he had promised to David some 30, well, he was obviously 30 when he, at this point, came into Hebron. So at the time when he was about a 15-year-old. And so right now, we know that Ishbosheth basically took over governing Israel when he was 40, David, Hebron, when he was 30. Both of these men now are seven and a half years older. In this time, we've discovered that it hasn't been really such an easy transition. And we had looked at that last week as well. What we see in that difficulty of a man that's been anointed by God to take over literally the ruling of a nation is that unruly people sometimes take time to put back together. It's the same for you and I. Because of our humanity, there will be a rule of law and there will be also an unruliness in people. People have to have a vision. The most important vision that anyone can have is of God. For when People have a vision of God, and the majority also see God as we see God as believers. The dividing line is erased. People move towards the center of God's will. They compress, and then what does God do? He expresses himself through that. It's one of the fundamental beauties of the church, a church which right now seems to be in suspension. Is it? Is it non-effective? 
No, we only know that from governance, it's not essential. We're not one of the chosen ones. I say that tongue in cheek, but I also can say it biting my tongue. We know that because of governance and free will, good intentions, which indeed we believe are in place with regard to a virus that has infected a populist group globally, the decisions are made to protect the majority. But I now move back to God. He's capable of protecting the majority. And in fact, the best majority that you can ever join and be a part of is the community of believers that bear witness of him, who are filled by the Spirit to do his will. And actually, I believe, very much endued to have a vitality that even defies things that relate to the afflictions of men, the infections in men. God can do that. Is he doing it? I believe that he is. But as we historically look at a divided kingdom, we are also going to see that even though it is a challenge to David, he has learned in all of his challenges that God is faithful. We as believers are to know with certainty God is faithful. We are also to know with certainty that we have rights that God has given to us. We are also to know with certainty that governance has given us rights that are extraordinary because godly men who straining at an overreach of their government back in the, sex, the 1700s said there's got to be a difference made here. And they chose lawfully to make that difference, choosing literally to disband from the fetters of overreach. That's not necessarily where we're at right now. We feel the bind. We want reunion. We want to be one. But the only way that can happen, as we also saw in our previous study, is terms of peace. In our Roman study, Paul gives us a clear word. As much as is possible, make terms of peace. Be peaceable with those who are in authority over you. Be at peace. Extend the right hand of fellowship. So David right now, though, in what we do know is calamity, and there has been consequence, because as we've talked about Abner and what he did, he was sabotaged by Joab, who was David's general, also a nephew. Hence, sometimes family members don't necessarily see eye to eye. That can cause problems. But in this, Joab would have been a subordinate of David. What he had, though, was a grudge against a man that David made terms of peace with. And in brokering this peace deal, Joab twisted the intent, saying that Abner had come down to just spy out our weaknesses and then to go back and with his battle plans wage war. He got it completely wrong. Not only did he get it wrong because of arrogance, he got it wrong because he had a vendetta. So we always need to be able to say, 
a vendetta against anyone, a conscious plan that's premeditated to do harm to someone, is not God's will. It is not God's will. And yet, that's one of the problems that we have in culture because we get stirred up, all kinds of passions. That's limited, though, if our true passion is on God. What he says in his word to do. The manual of warfare can be conducted, but the Bible would say it's on our knees. We need to be praying. Ephesians 6 makes it clear that we fight an enemy that we cannot see, but he's present. And his whole intention as an enemy army is to wage war with God's army. In essence, there was a picture there as well in David's life because he had been fleeing from a man who no longer followed God as a leader of God's people, but followed in his own intentions, his own wickedness. That was Saul. What Saul basically had done in his leadership was pass on that philosophy. So as much as is possible, and it is, we pray for those who are in governance over us. Even what ought to be the specific objection of how they govern. But we do so asking that the heart is converted and that in the mess that people make, especially those in authority, we too, we aren't off the mark, but we're precise in how God desires us to be effectual in our prayers, allowing, if you would, the brokering of law to have its proper place. Why? Because God gave laws. When we allow laws to broker in a manner that ultimately God turns the hearts of men, then the deal comes out very sweet for everyone. But remember, the point here is that what happens, though, when men seemingly with godly men take it upon themselves to do godless deeds? Is there a consequence? Some may ask, yeah, what is the consequence? What is the consequence? Because Joab did a godless deed. He conspired with his brother to basically bring Abner back under false pretense and to do so for the purpose of murdering him. Well, it's really important to remind ourselves that he didn't get away with anything, you may say. Well, chapter 4 is going to show us that he's still in the mix, and chapter 5 is going to show us that he's still in the mix. In fact, the rest of of the study in Samuel will show us that he's still in the mix. How can he be if he's guilty with his brother of murder? So I'm only asking you to go back and review with your eyes what this means so we can have a proper perspective. When David had found out what had been done, David renders. He basically adjudicates as a prophet, as a king, to dispense evil with his eyes and he makes a sentence. It is a pronouncement. The pronouncement is in justice. That means fairness and reasonability to what Joab had done maliciously. And here's what he says. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house 
and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. That basically is a lifetime curse. It means exactly what it says. It was, in fact, beyond even what would be a corporal punishment. It was one that literally would change the dimensions and the effectiveness of his lineage forever. Some people may gasp how terrible that is. It would have been better that he died, perhaps. But God is making a statement right now. What happens if people who point to the fact of a generational curse use that as an excuse of where they're at, what they can't do? Well, here's what you can do, and here's why the excuse doesn't work. Because one greater than David who pronounced this curse on the cross took the curse. That's the exchange. It's an important reality of understanding that no man has an excuse of saying, it's in my family blood. I'm wired this way. Everything that I've known about my family leads me to this conclusion. There's no hope. Therefore, as they behaved, as God has certainly not helped me out, I shall behave. And there's no reason to change. Because every person in my family that's tried to change can't change. The challenge is, how did they try to change? How did they change? If they didn't change, then I would say they didn't come to the one who changes people. That's Jesus. David uttered a curse. Jesus from the cross took our curse and pronounced upon all humanity, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Joab knew what he did. What he didn't do was to come to David in repentance. Would David have spared him? Don't know. What we do know is he had no intention. It was discovered by David. And therefore David rendered a decision that would be lifetime. That's important because right now, in one sense, if you do not look to Jesus, who took that curse upon himself, then it means you're under the former curse in which sin reigns and prevails in death in your life. So what we want to do is to have a perspective that David had. He was merciful. He was charitable. He was gracious. But he's also a picture of one who, in the most part, probably greater than what we mark him for in his failures, was honorable and judicial. This area right now in scriptures tells us, though, about two other guys. And these two other guys in this particular account are behaving like a guy we just talked about. How could it be that two other guys from another army, Israel, come to be like a guy we just saw from Judah, Hebron, one of David's closest advisors and successful gen generals. It's because they probably had that within them their entire life, and it's probably because rather than having their eyes truly on the way that David operated, they took their cues and clues from men of violence. 
the violence that Joab obviously could be rightly, if you would, categorized as having is what we would call warfare. And God makes a provision in warfare that has been commissioned by governance. What we saw, though, is that Abner wasn't at war. What we saw as an act of forgiveness, David gave in terms of peace. And as a result of that, there is the consequence. Joab didn't honor the terms of peace. People, as well, have challenges honoring the terms of peace that God has offered. And when you do not honor the terms of peace that God has offered, the Bible tells us that we are at enmity with God. We're fighting God. We're not aligning ourselves with God. We're not agreeing to God on anything. So the story continues right now about these guys and what literally they're going to do, believing that it's going to be rewarded. It won't. We always need to remind ourselves that perhaps even in our plans to get ahead, have I bowed the head? Or am I going to do what I want to do because I'm justified in what happened to me and therefore I'm going to let it play out? I'm going to put my hands to a cause that is godless and potentially live out a curse that you don't need to. Sometimes people need to hear that not only as a warning to bring clarity to their minds, but it's also a word that, though hard perhaps to receive, if it is received and the transaction leads to you rethinking what you would do, may do, could do, it changes everything about great word being used today, the trajectory of your life, the lineage of hope. The fact that God wants you in heaven. He doesn't want you in the grave. So as this opens up again as we were at it, Hebron's the place right now that equally is a city of refuge. And it says that in this losing of heart, Ishbosheth realizes that it really is all over. Abner has gone from him. He understands that Abner now has been taken maliciously, and he really has no other reliance at all. Did he have time, as Abner had time, to change a course of action? And my belief is, because he would have sat under his brother Jonathan, I believe that Jonathan was highly influential but you know how sometimes when there are highly influential men of the Spirit in our lives, they're kind of the last person that we want to see, want to go to? That might be it. Sometimes the claim to have a position is greater on the heart than the claim to have resignation. It tells us exactly what he did in this time in which Israel was all troubled, and he had lost his heart. We have a country that's really troubled. Men are losing their heart. 
It's not a time to take a nap in the midday sun. Saul's son, verse 2, had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Behanna, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Berathite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beroth also was part of Benjamin. They have a linkage, ultimately, in Saul, hereditarily. But it's interesting because as you look at this word, these names, Behanna would mean affliction or afflictor. And his brother's name would mean, which I find to be interesting, a predatory horseman. He's an afflictor and he's a predatory horseman. Those kinds of individuals actually exist today. And sometimes in areas of the unseen, they're very small, but they're very powerful. But the narration was changing right now because we're being introduced. It's, it's really right now where there's been a thinking of two people who are going to be, they're going to be doing some stuff that they ought not do. And yet we see somebody right now that's linked to a very special friend and brother who has been taken in battle, that's Jonathan. The individual's name is Mephibosheth. And it indicates that he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name, Mephibosheth. Now, one of the things related to that is that if he was five at the time that his father died with his grandfather, he's still in his early teens right now. And as one who's in his early, early teens right now, the only person that he has a link with in heredity, and perhaps even in comfort, would be his father's brother. That would make him the uncle. Ishbosheth is his uncle. He's the king that right now has a heart that's very fearful. And so it continues on in verse 5. Then the sons, which we just named, of Rimon, the Burathite, Rechab and Bana, set out and came out about the heat of day to the house of Ishbosheth who was lying down on his bed at noon. And I was making a point on this in advance in my narration. When there is an issue of the heart, and when in fact there is fear that is invoked, it could be that comfort may come in the noonday by lying down. But it also may mean that you need to take an initiative to not allow that heart condition to do anything else but move you towards the cool of fellowship with God. It is a picture. Broken hearts, fearfulness, drive people away from vitality and into complacency. Now, this isn't a take up the sword and 
challenge anything and everything that seemingly is the condition of your heart. Rather, it's a call, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that in due season he shall exalt you. Well, you may say, what exaltation would there have been if he had, in fact, not taken the nap, but taken steps forward and done like Abner had done, brokered terms of peace. We don't know because he didn't do it. We don't know. What we see now being set is a consequence of that action. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a nap in the heat of day. This is pointing to the fact that his heart gave out in a time of intense pressure and of great fear. Men's hearts will fail them in times of pressure and great fear. So the advice from Scripture, based on the consequence that we're going to read about, is to seek the Lord in the coolness of his fellowship. You may say, how can I get out of the heat? Well, this is spiritual heat, and it intensifies. It intensifies more that we ignore the obvious. Things aren't going well in my life. I have enemies potentially all around me, no one that I can trust in. And so this is a time in which who you want to trust may not be the obvious to you, and the means by which you're choosing to protect yourself isn't the way for you. It's surrender. He may have been very disappointed in Abner turning his back, but Abner actually was turning the right way. And Ishbosheth did have an opportunity to move from his city of refuge to call out to his people and saying, The writing has been made by God on the heart of David and on those who have followed him for these past, now it would be 17 and a half years. He is our king. I am not your king. Remember, David's a picture. He's a picture, an advanced picture of Jesus. He has imperfections. Jesus didn't. But what Ishbosheth needed to do was to take charge in that moment of discharging, passing out on the bed, and to move himself and his people towards David to seek for restoration of the nation as a whole, to get behind a man of God whom they knew was in fact anointed to be God's king and the shepherd of God's people. As the story continues about these men, it says in verse 6, And they came there all the way into the house. They basically have come as intruders. They kind of remind me of what the scriptures say Satan's tactics are. He's a lion. He seeks by roaming whom he will devour. He's a thief. He steals. And so these guys enter in basically without permission. We don't know why there isn't guards there, but we only know that a man is unguarded, which is when the enemy takes advantage of us, when we are unguarded. Let's presume that we don't have men to guard us. Whom do we have? For you and I, practically, we have the word of God. 
we have literally the power of God if we call out to him, cry out to him. He's available to any. He actually waits to hear from us. And actually the predicament that we can find ourselves in is the press point by which he says, talk to me, cry out to me, ask of me what I can do for you that I have done for you. See, people need to understand God already has done something for them, for us. They need to cry out for it, not to ask for another work, but to claim the work that has been done by God for them in the time of crises, in the time of demise, in the time of invasion, in the time of peril, of fear. And fear drives people to do things that lack common sense. It makes us senseless. It makes us insensible. It incites within us decisions that we ought not do. But these men right now, they have a plan. We know why their plan is implemented because that's where Proverbs took us. Both in chapter 1 and Proverbs 6, we understand that they were arrogant men seeking gain by pursuing evil, feet that ran to it, conspired with one another concerning it. Their intention was malicious. Their act would be murder. And as Joab murdered Abner, these men will murder an innocent king. As it continues... They came in to the house. He was lying on his bed in his bedroom, a place that most of us would say is that which is our sanctuary. It's a place of respite, privacy, security. That's where he's at. And then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. What are they doing? Well, they've committed an act of murder, and what they're doing in what we see here, the beheading of Ishbosheth, is showing the evidence of it. Oh, why would anybody that commits murder want to show evidence of it? Because they're misunderstanding God. They don't know David's heart. They believe that that is going to be for them a trophy to move up in the ranks. These guys actually are low-ranking officers over a ragtag army right now that don't know who to follow, and they don't know what they're doing. And so these guys don't have skill sets that are really targeted towards anything now but destruction. They don't see it because pride has already infected them and because of one other thing, the lust for power. They realize that Abner, their general, has met his demise. They probably have presumption that Joab did it. And they probably have knowledge of whom Joab is and the skirmishes that they were involved in. Ooh, he's one to reckon with. So what we're going to do is what will perhaps give to Joab a sense of accomplishment because 
he might think and defend us before David, who will think we're on his side. We've turned over the kingdom to David. Let's turn things around for us. Let's invest in the other option we have. So they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, of Saul and his descendants. What they didn't ruminate on, rethink, is that at no time did David try to take Saul's life. He fled from Saul. He fled from evil. And at times, that is your battle plan. You flee from evil and you take hold of God in his goodness. How do we understand that God delivers us? By being in the predicament of needing to be delivered. Many people will take hold of many things but God. And ultimately and sadly, they've literally embraced their demise. There are out there lots of things that entice men to take the hand of. If it's not a snooze during a time in which you should be at your most humble and most determined to seek God, then there are hands that will have themselves offering the opportunity of salvation. It can be in a bottle. It can be in drugs. We've seen its toll. It's an enemy force. Satan uses that. It can be in relationships that absolutely are not godly. They're godless. Within the heart of men, God has placed eternity. That means values that relate to God. That means the way that we ought to seek God have been evidenced in man. But what we do is we read a different script. We listen to a different voice. We seek a different solution. And that's what these men do not understand about David. They obviously know him as a valiant warrior. They obviously would have known his exploits as a young man. They could have even said, man, wouldn't it be great to be in the band with David? I mean, he's invented over 700 instruments. He sings like a rock star. And if we show him what we are willing to do and what Joab could acknowledge, yeah, right on. That's what I did. You did what I did. I'll stand with you before David. All of these things, which are vain imaginations and evil intentions, they do not understand about David who sees with eyes of righteousness in this occasion and will adjudicate with precision and it will be consequential to these brothers, brothers in arms, linked together in a terrible travesty of justice. So even when we see travesties of justice, we do what? We go back to the beginning and we say, Lord, you are the judge supreme. We have Supreme Courts that have made terrible decisions. We come back to you, the Supreme God, the Headmaster, the Master of everyone who has a head on their shoulders, and who in this case, one who no longer has a head on his shoulders. Could he have had? I think the fallback is this, if he had taken an opportunity. If he had taken the opportunity. 
if you took a different opportunity in your life in which a decision you made could be remade for God, even though you may not know much about him, or maybe at one time you knew a lot about him, what would be the outcome right now? Would you have lost your head? In other words, now living in a state of insanity, living in a state of complacency, living pathetically. Perhaps that never, ever had to be your outcome. These guys can't change it. In fact, the sentence hasn't even been assigned. But what we're going on right now is that they do not understand David. And if they don't understand David, I guarantee you, there are people who in this life who even can acknowledge a king, a man of authority, the great guy in the sky, they don't understand that when wickedness is committed, when there has been an injustice justified, he will render a decision that has a consequence. And the only way out is to come into his court, to come into his court, to confess that you are wrong. That's called conviction. If we respond to conviction, guess what? If it's to Jesus upon the work that he did, God sees it because Jesus is appealing on behalf of the work that he did, satisfying our debt, satisfying the penalty of sin, which is death, satisfying the judgment of God, taking that curse upon himself. As I said, Job got cursed. He's not getting out of it. No one's getting out of the curse unless you go to the one who took the curse. Always needing to be emphasized, always, especially in these last days, clarified. They don't know David. And maybe some of you don't know Jesus. And you're trying to make an approach to him on merit. Surely God will be impressed with this and what I've done to now choose sides. But you've done it the wrong way. You've lost your head, even though you think that that head you're carrying, in this case, is going to impress the one who you honestly need to come before and repent. These brothers, looking into the eyes of David, boasting about what they have done, and saying, probably most insultingly, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Not true. There's still a descendant. And they didn't avenge for the Lord. They took vengeance of the Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. So don't do anything that takes from me what I do accurately and precisely, judicially, inarguably. Don't do it. So that would have been a deep insult to David because he avoided at all costs, even of his reputation, of taking Saul out. David didn't dislike, disdain, hate Saul. He didn't appreciate what he was being put through. 
but he made every effort possible with the authority that God had given to him not to take matters into his own hands, but to trust his life into the hands of the Lord. David answered Rechab and Behanna, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. That's a good word to camp on. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Are you one who in all adversity seeks the Lord who has redeemed you from that? David is saying, I know what it's like to have adversaries. I know what it's like to be spent. I know what it's like to not like what I'm going through. I know what it's like to be hated. I know what it's like to be on endless pilgrimage from spot to spot, mile to mile. I've been there. And what he's saying to us, though not literally in this text, but by his life, as I've learned much and what I've suffered through. And this I know about God. He's faithful. He has delivered to me all that I need. I will not accept from you what is completely wrong. And so, as he's getting into this sentence, when someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So you might remember back a while when the battle was going on at Gilboa where Saul and Jonathan and the other brother lost their lives. Dale, um, David was involved in combat. It was called the slaughter of the Amalekites. The one that had come from Gilboa was an Amalekite. And he was the one that presented the crown and armor of Saul, thinking that that was going to be very impressive. And also boasting that he had contributed to the demise of Saul, which the scriptures say he didn't. Vain boasting. Vain boasting. And David's reminding these two and probably they are very aware of it, that that is in fact what happened to an Amalekite. They may have thought, but we're Israelites. It's different for us. It's different for us. They were an enemy. We're not anymore. We want to be friendly. We want to be on your side, but not on the terms that David could accept. The acceptation of David for these guys would have had to come by Ishbosheth escorting them and all of Israel, the elders who would follow, and saying, David, we are your servants. We're not generals. We're not captains. We're not anything. You're everything. Our hearts, we knit with you. Our lives, we surrender to you. If we, being once former enemies of you, find that it's not acceptable in what we've done, no, that our intent was to repent. And we did that. That never happened. It could have. It didn't. It can happen for some today. Will it? An important question. And so how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his bed? Let me camp there for a second. David would have remembered that. 
he was given information of a conspiracy of Saul's men that he dispatched to his home that he was living in with Michael. Michael had picked up word that there were going to be men that were going to execute him. So she let David out to escape while those men came in and basically took stabs and jabs at a dummy, basically an idol that she had in the home, and puffed up pillows and blankets to look as though David was there. And they went back to Saul and said, he's not there. David would have understood deeply how that would have hurt such a conspiracy that in his home and with the king's daughter, that guy, whom was his father-in-law, was going to kill him. This would have had a great pricking on his conscience in terms of that sinister scheme. And so... Let me pick this back up. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? This is the sentence that's being imposed. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Two men will be united in death, one who was an heir apparent, one who was indeed a major general to Saul, one that we know is the cousin of Saul, one who brokered terms of peace. They will share a grave together, but they could have shared honor together had there not been conspiracy on one and complacency on the other. Had both of them come to terms with whom David was and acted together to unite Israel as one. These two men did not achieve what they wanted. As a direct result of that it is indicative that their execution was swift. And by the way, there will be a day in which execution is swift. It's known as the wrath of God. It's not to invoke a misleading fear in you. It's the fact of the matter that God in this time, in his patience, is calling out to people to not be involved in the conspiracy against him, warring against your own soul that wants to know him. Everything that a man engages in that is opposite of God, that is wickedness in the sight of God, that is unrighteousness before a righteous people, God will judge. You either accept that he's judged his son and therefore you will be exempted of judgment or you deny his son and you will be judged in sin and trespass. Why though the hands, why the feet? Because those feet ran maliciously to wickedness. Those hands in the strength and grip that God gave them committed a heinous crime. It was murder. Murder is punishable by death. What about Joab? We already talked about Joab. He probably would say, I'm living a life of death. I've lost my family. Would he have seen it? I think little by little 
over the years that he would live, some 40 additional, because we know he outlived David, and he would have looked back saying, wow, my life has been haunted by that decision back then. And I never took the initiative to make it right with David. I never took the initiative to make it right with God. Jesus in Matthew 5, in the 30th verse, would say concerning what happens when the eye is fixed on what it ought not be, a member of the body, and when the hand is in the grip or grips something that is not a part of the member of the body properly. Pluck it out, cut it off. This idea about the head is important too because the head represents an authority. When we defy an authority, we're challenging the head, the headmaster. When we defy God, we're challenging the head. Jesus is head over your life, my life, the church, and the world system, as I said before, poetically, headmaster, sovereign. So the severance is indicating right now, as well as the punishment of being hung, it is a mark of the most staunch statement of disrespect towards men who disrespected the king and who took literally the Lord's name in vain. By the way, that's something men will be accountable for, is taking the Lord's name in vain. I just do it figuratively. Well, you ought not. That was a punishable death sentence in the Old Testament. Many of us have. God would say, don't do it. My name is to be revered. My name is holy. That's a good place to start. Oh, okay, well, murder hasn't been on my mind, but man, my mouth hasn't been behaving right lately. Take it to the Lord. Let him take that from you. You don't have to be tongue-tied, but you also don't have to be careless of your tongue. And ultimately, why not take the Lord's name in vain if you've been pained? Because you're misrepresenting God. You need to take the tongue that is cursing God and take that tongue and confess God. And bless the Lord. Change your circumstance by changing how you feel towards God and towards God's people and towards God's nation. The Lord is taking from both Israel and the Gentile world a harvest, and He's bringing us together in a beautiful work called the Bride of Christ. We know her to be the church that today around different parts of the world and perhaps even here persecuted. We ought not persecute the church. The church is essential. And though I don't lean on the word persecution with regard to the pandemic we're in, there are certain markers right now that say at one point in time, the church will be the hunted. Do you want to be hunted down? You will be. If you want one to run to, which is the Lord, the only way and means by doing that is as the scriptures would say, and David penned, 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are saved. You can be saved by literally running in to the name of the Lord. How do you run into the name of the Lord? Come to where the name of the Lord is pronounced. Fly into those doors. Take a seat. Come to the altar. Seek prayer. Get your Bible out. Buy a Bible. Ask for a Bible. Be tutored in the excellency of counsel. Don't take the world's counsel. There was consequence, sad consequence. Okay, is there like just a practical verse that I can just go with? I mean, we've been in Proverbs. That was, okay, fairly indicting. Can you give me just kind of a glimmer of hope? Something easier to assimilate? So turn with me to Psalm 119. And I can give you a glimmer of hope. One that actually is blinding. And in verse 9, remember, these were young men that David appointed to execute evil. Young men, you are appointed to execute evil, not by power that's in your wrist and in your arms, in your biceps, in your pectoralis majors, in your abdominals, not by intellect, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How can a young man cleanse his ways? How could these guys have? It says, by taking heed according to your word. Verse 10 of 119. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. That's it. That's a compression of what you can do so that you don't behave like these brothers behaved, which is a picture of bad behavior because they approached a great king on the merit of what they thought would be impressive, but it was gruesome, not acceptable, adjudicated, executed, shamed. And there will be a day in which that is the pronouncement on a Christ-rejecting world. But it doesn't have to be. Because God says, young men, this is the way you execute evil. By keeping, according to my word, the statutes. Follow me. Don't follow them. Follow me. And that's the way that God does it. Pretty awesome. Isaiah 59 Pick it up just a couple of verses at about verse 6. 59, Isaiah, just a couple of verses down. Getting back to these guys. Getting back to the world system. Bad dudes. Their works are works of iniquity. And the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. If you got feet that are running to evil people that are in it for themselves and want to undo the work of God, don't go there. Don't run there. It continues, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. 
Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destructions are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. That means they are not fair and they're not reasonable. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. We can at least say this about Abner. He died as a warrior and as an innocent. And he died having made peace with David. Death is inevitable. Will you make peace with the greater than David, the son of David, whom he believed would come from his lineage to take on an eternal throne, Jesus Christ? Will you know that king? Will you know the prince of peace to have the peace of God prevail in a time of great unrest, discord, rally. The Lord would say, don't miss out on your opportunity. Opportunity knocks. I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Change. And by the way, he would say, and I can do that. It's actually quite effortless. All you have to do is use your mouth and your heart and your mind to say what I want to hear from you.